Hello everyone and welcome to this latest episode of the UK in a Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast. And today my guest is the one and only Meg Russell, Professor of British and Comparative Politics at University College London and of course, as many of you will know her, Director of the famed Constitution Unit. Meg, great to have you with us. Good to be here, Anand. My God, I mean, where to start given your expertise and what's going on in the world? Let's start with Peter Hennessy. And Peter Hennessy's recently claimed that Boris Johnson has killed off the good chap theory of government. But looking back, was it ever sensible to think that such a theory would work as a basis for a governing system? Should we have a system that relies on the self-restraint of the politicians, or is that naive on our part? Peter's on to something, for sure. But I would say that Democracy in every country depends on good chaps and, of course, chapesses. And everybody has to preface referring to Peter's lovely term by saying uh, that was coined some time ago when there were many fewer chapesses in politics. But, you know, I think you can over-exaggerate the extent to which our system is different to others, is sort of less constrained and depends more on convention. I mean, it definitely does depend more on convention. We don't have a written constitution, etc. But every democracy, irrespective of whether it has a written rules, requires people to behave properly. Look at the US, for example. Obviously, Trump has caused significant controversy with the way that he has behaved. They are the most famous written constitution in the world. It's not the constitution that makes a president who's lost an election leave the White House. You know, you have to voluntarily do that. Even though everybody understands that's the system, but the constitution doesn't physically march you out of the building. Mm -hmm. You have to comply with the rules. And so, yes, there have been things like the prorogation where Boris Johnson was taking advantage or seeking to take advantage of a power that he thought the prime minister had rather than necessarily taking advantage of one the prime minister did have because, of course, he was overturned by the Supreme Court. You know, the expectation prior to the prorogation had been that prorogations were short things which weren't used to political advantage, which were just for you know, the end of one session, beginning of another. And he decided to stretch that to its limits and he got knocked back by the Supreme Court. Other politicians might not have done that because they would have wanted to fall in with the way politics has always been done and sort of stick to the expectations. So there are ways in which you can push the limits. But I think that even in a rule-based system, people need to behave properly. The implication from what you're saying is that Boris Johnson's a bit different to others who've held that position or others in politics. I mean, what is it about his character you think that, that is different? Or is there anything different about him? Politicians have to be on a spectrum of some kind, you know, from those who are sort of the most straight laced and the keenest on following convention and those who will push it a bit. But he is at the extreme end, for sure. And, you know, if you read any of the biographies of Boris Johnson, any of the commentaries about him by the well-sourced journalists and so on, you know, it's, it's been long known throughout his career. If you listen to his former employers when he was in journalism, that he's never been one who's been keen to sort of follow the rules. He doesn't like being constrained. He thinks, you know, you, there's that famous report by his teacher, isn't there, that he didn't feel he needed to be bound by the rules that bound everybody else. And that's when he's at school. So I think he's the first prime minister, certainly in modern times, that you can say things like that about. And I think he's demonstrated that basically over and over again. And I think, you know, this is the UK and Changing Europe podcast. So it's worthwhile emphasising that this is in part a story about Brexit. You know, Brexit was the thing that facilitated the rise to the premiership of somebody who operates in that way. 
because Brexit was a very, very difficult conundrum, you know, based on, as you know more than anybody, a very complex negotiation to disentangle ourselves from the EU that we'd been in for, you know, 40 odd years. There's lots and lots of complex detail. And it was going to be very, very difficult to come up with a deal that, I mean, it was going to be impossible to come up with a deal that satisfied everyone. Theresa May was struggling. Her party was split. They were not pleased with her. The country maybe wasn't pleased with her. Boris Johnson to the rescue. I can fix this. It's all easy. Just leave it to me. I will get Brexit done. And that takes someone really who isn't willing to accept the complexities and doesn't necessarily want to pay too much attention to the rules. And he signed up to a deal and said that there wasn't going to be a border down the Irish Sea, you know, and of course, so there was. And then he spent all the time since arguing that we need to get rid of the border down the Irish Sea that somehow he didn't know was there and though he didn't know was going to be inevitable based on his deal, which has a small resonance with the party claims, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody told me. Nobody told me it was going to be at a border down the Irish Sea. Uh, let's get out of it. I suppose it would almost be comforting, you know, the, the root of all the challenges that the UK's constitution faces Boris Johnson. But it's broader than that, isn't it? I mean, those challenges aren't confined to the character of the, the prime minister at the moment. In terms of Brexit, he was the sort of the man for the moment, for the reason that I've just indicated. But I think it goes broader than that. You know, we've seen long term disillusionment with politics, politicians, political institutions, you know, you can trace that back over many years in the polls. There have been sort of highs and lows. I've been in this business quite a long time. The 1997 general election to me doesn't feel that far away. You know, there was a mood of optimism at that time. But then by the 2001 general election, we saw a dip in voter turnout. I think it was something like 56%, if I remember rightly. Enormous concerns at that time about people turning away from politics. Then, you know, fast forward a few years, you've got the MPs expenses crisis and people saying, you know, this has damaged the reputation of parliament and of politicians. And so you've got this sort of long term trend towards people being turned off by politics and this growing mood of it doesn't matter who's in power. They're all the same. You know, they've all got their noses in the trough. They're they're Mm. all dishonest. Yeah. Which facilitates, again, you know, that that long lead in facilitates the arrival in power of somebody who is a bit less mindful of the truth, perhaps, than politicians traditionally have been. If, if you get to a point where everybody thinks that politicians are liars, you've created a situation where a liar can take over and nobody is surprised by the lies. I suppose there's also a Brexit element to this, isn't there? Because some of the sort of bubbling problems, there were, you know, there were issues in Northern Ireland prior to the 2016 referendum. There was a certain tension in English-Scottish relations. All those sorts of things have been brought to a head by Brexit as well, haven't they? So you've sort of got this sort of confluence of things affecting us at the same time. Again, I would say, let's not assume that Britain is unique here. I remember talking to David Runciman about this once. I think there's something here about the maturing of democracy and learning to live with democracy as a modern, complex society. Because, you know, the nature of democracy and politics is it's a collective endeavor and it requires people to compromise. Bernard Crick wrote about this in his In Defense of Politics back in the 1960s, you know, a really important book that was written in the wake of the Second World War and the rise of fascism and so on in defense of politics, by which he meant in defense of compromise. 
in defense of finding peaceable solutions to divisions within society and agreeing ways in which we can live together, which require none of us to quite get what we want. And you could see following fascism, you know, extremism across Europe and war, that people were prepared to embrace that and celebrate that. And that's what Crick was trying to do. And he was trying to remind us that the alternatives to politics are much, much worse. The alternatives to politics are war, totalitarianism, and so on. And I think that as we've become, I wrote about this 15, 16 years ago in a pamphlet for the Fabian Society called Must Politics Disappoint? As we have become a richer, a more privileged, a more diverse, Mm. a better educated, a more consumerist society, we've slightly turned away from those collective solutions. You know, we're subject to, Mm -hmm. you know, the growth of individualism, a consumer society where advertising tells us we can all get what we want all of the time. Collective solutions and compromise look rather boring and outdated, but that's what you need for politics. And I think there are lots of big patterns here going on that are contributing to people turning away from politics and democracy in countries all over the world. And I think this sort of, this sort of populist rise that we've seen with Johnson and, you know, not just Johnson, actually, we're seeing that kind of move all over the world. And it's a kind of it, it's an appeal to individualism that says you don't have to compromise. You can have it all. And of course, you can't. When you hear people like Rory Stewart, who's been sort of come up with some very pungent criticisms, not just of the prime minister, but of our system. Rory has said that this is a, you know, we now have a political system that sort of inherently generates bad governance outcomes because it's narrow, it's partisan. Your response would be actually it's not unique to our system. Or are there elements of our system that makes this global phenomenon worse here? I I certainly don't think it's unique to our system. You're seeing these pressures all over, all over Western Europe, Eastern Europe. You know, we've seen the troubles in the US. So, you know, across those, across those systems, to me, as a, as a person who focuses on constitutions and political institutions, you know, we don't have a written constitution. All of those other countries do. You've got presidential systems. You've got systems which use proportional representation and have very fragmented party systems and others like ours, which are more sort of two party ish kind of systems. You've got systems that have got second chambers, others that have got single chamber parliaments. So I don't think the causes are institutional. I don't think they're about constitutional design. I think they're much, much more about culture and attitudes to the whole idea. You know, all of those systems require the things that I was just talking about. They all require compromise to Mm -hmm. come up with solutions that everybody in society is prepared to live with and rules that people are prepared to be governed by. And when that breaks down, I don't think any kind of institutional design is going to rescue you. You need cultural change. Wouldn't it be fair to say that, it, that institutional design has played its part in our system? I mean, think about how parties elect their leaders, for instance, and the problems this can cause. You know, you end up with that disconnect between Labour MPs and their leader for so long during the Brexit process. The way Parliament functions has changed partly as a function of these rules changing, hasn't it? Totally. I agree with that. But of course, that was actually, you know, I don't want to sit here and be a defender of the old constitution, whatever that was. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as the old constitution because the flexibility in our system means that it's been constantly changing. You can go back to changes at the beginning of the 20th century, the power of the House of Lords, you know, the independence for the Republic of Ireland, etc. So, you know, constant change. You've got post-1997, devolution, human rights, Act, all of those Blair reforms, etc., etc. So the Constitution doesn't stand still, but 
that thing that you've just referred to, which I think is actually really important about the change to how party leaders are chosen, is a move away from the old system. So until the 1980s, parliamentary parties picked their own leaders. Yeah. And it was the Labour Party that began the process of opening that out to the wider membership, to the trade unions and the constituencies. And then eventually that became a push to one member, one vote. And the Conservatives followed because this, you know, it was seen that the Labour Party was becoming more, quote, democratic, yeah. more inclusive, more participation, and that the Conservatives needed to follow. And, and you know, the extreme point that that got to was the election of Jeremy Corbyn by the mm -hmm. Labour Party totally lacking, completely obviously lacking the support of his parliamentary party. And immediately after the referendum, of course, they tried to get rid of him. They had a vote of an overwhelming vote of no confidence in him and they couldn't get rid of him. And so you've got a kind of disempowered parliamentary party at that point. And at that point, you see the system is malfunctioning. And we could be about to see the same thing with the Conservative Party. David Gork wrote a very interesting piece on Conservative Home a few days ago, pointing out that in all of the leadership elections that the Conservative Party has run so far, the membership has backed insofar as the membership's been consulted, because sometimes, like Theresa May, it's ended with the Parliamentary Party and the membership was never consulted. But where they have been, they've backed the most popular candidate amongst MPs. This time could be the time, if, if, we're, if we're about to have a leadership election, the next one we have whenever it comes. You could even have the membership of the Conservative Party imposing a leader on the parliamentary party in the same way as the Labour Party had with Corbyn. And I think that was catastrophic for parliamentary politics. We've taken a long time to recover from that. And for the prime minister to be in that position would be very uncomfortable. And it also strikes me, and I don't know what you think about this, that all these sort of research groups, parties within parties, if you like, have kind of changed the dynamics within parliament as well. I mean, we saw with sort of Steve Baker's effectiveness at being the sort of organiser-in-chief of the European Research Group. You've now got different research groups for virtually every issue under the sun. Has that, is that a substantive change, do you think, or is it just merely stylistic? It's a kind of strengthening of a tendency that was there before. And I think, again, you can trace this back to Brexit, actually. I mean, Brexit resulted in a bigger clash between the executive and parliament than we've seen in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Because the referendum result provided a mandate for the government to deliver something that the majority of parliamentarians hadn't wanted prior to the referendum. And then you had, you know, Theresa May's disastrous gamble in 2017 resulting in a minority government. So you actually got a government trying to deliver a controversial policy without even having a parliamentary majority. You know, that was that was a recipe for division. And one of the ways that Theresa May responded to that was to, and I think it was in her character already, was to try and shut Parliament out of decision-making as best she could. And there was a rationality to that, because without a majority, she was likely to get in trouble with whatever she put in front of Parliament, and particularly something as controversial as Brexit. And so she had a tendency to sort of shut down scrutiny and shut down consultation with Parliament. And then Boris Johnson arrived at the tail end of that minority administration with absolutely, I think, for reasons that we've already discussed regarding his character, absolutely an inclination to not face scrutiny, to not have his decisions questioned. That worked for a while. In the end, it simply winds parliamentarians up. You know, we went from Brexit to COVID. COVID was very centralised decision making. 
the government using maximum use, extreme use, use that was not always justified, I think, of emergency powers, which was shutting Parliament out, parliamentarians became more and more angry. And as you say, people like Steve Baker, who were organising very effectively against Theresa May on Brexit, moved over quite rapidly to organising against the Johnson government on COVID. And then you've got these factions propagating within the Conservative Party, which it's sort of reaction and counter-reaction. If the government doesn't let backbenchers in, then backbenchers will become increasingly extreme in their demands on the government. But I've heard Steve Baker referred to as the leader of the opposition within the governing party, which is a peculiar kind of office that I don't think we've ever really had before. This goes back to your point about the good chap theory to an extent or the unwritten rules. The unwritten rules of politics are that Parliament often, I've said this a lot in my work, it often looks like Parliament is doing what the government tells it to because the government puts something forward and Parliament votes for it and backbenchers vote for it and it looks like maybe they're a bunch of sheep who don't have their own opinions. No, it doesn't work like that. They vote for it because they've been consulted beforehand, because the whips have done their work and taken the temperature of the parliamentary party and worked out what people are prepared to support. And then the government puts something forward knowing that it's got support. Johnson doesn't get that. I think he's just ignored those dynamics. He thinks that if he comes up with something, because he's prime minister, they'll vote for it. And it's never worked like that. And it it breeds resentment and anger on the back benches. And that's kind of at fever pitch now. Do you think there's an element that, I mean, you know, the, the, the vote share of the two big parties in the last two elections has been striking? I imagine part of what happens as a result of that is they're both even bigger tents than they already were. And it's, it's one of the problems that actually you've got such disparate opinions within the big two parties now because they are such broad tents that that's made it harder for governments to keep party discipline. Yes, of course. I mean, you're taking me slightly out of my comfort zone here. You begin to start talking about political ideology here. But clearly, you know, the the Red Wall MPs are representing constituencies that are very different to traditional conservative constituencies that have very different kind of economic needs and very different cultures. And so one of the pressures is going to be, isn't it, between, you know, big spending versus small spending, those kind of traditional left-right tensions, which have always existed within the Conservative Party as well as between parties. You know, I think Steve Baker is probably quite a long way in terms of his economic views from a lot of those Red Wall MPs. And those tensions are bubbling away and those could surface at some time between now and the next election. You know, the the arguments that we're seeing over the national insurance increase, for example. You've just finished at the Constitution Unit, fascinating large piece of work involving both a big survey on attitudes towards politics and citizens' assembly as well. Now, I know the answers and the, the sort of findings of the latter aren't released yet, so we're going to save a little bit of suspense by not, not going into them in detail. But, I mean, if I can just ask you sort of how you found that process and whether you find those processes useful of direct engagement in this way with citizens. What's, what's so interesting about it? The project is funded by the ESRC's Governance After Brexit strand, which is, you know, again, connected to the UK and a changing Europe's work. What we wanted to do was look at how people in the UK want to be governed after Brexit, because it's, you know, it's had a big effect on our politics, not only in terms of the obvious ways, like the use of a referendum and the arguments between the executive parliament and the courts, but also obviously policymaking on certain issues is coming home to Westminster. We have to think about how we make decisions in those policy areas that were previously governed from the EU. So yes, we conducted this very large survey, sort of asking people about democratic values and constitutional values and 
pushing them on some of the controversial questions that have been around in the last few years in terms of the balance of power in the constitution. And we asked similar questions of the Citizens' Assembly. And one of the points was to try and work out, and we're not quite there yet with publishing this element of it, to what extent people's kind of knee-jerk reactions in a survey are different to their reactions in a deliberative process in a Citizens' Assembly when they've had a lot more of a chance to weigh up the evidence and think it through. So we asked similar kinds of questions to both groups of citizens. And actually, we're somewhat surprised by what we got from the knee-jerk survey responses. There were some surveys during the Brexit period, which suggested that people were really prepared to countenance some quite significant, and in some respects, it's quite worrying moves away from politics as it's always been done. So one example was the Hansard Society's poll in late 2018. Did people want a strong leader who was willing to break the rules? And it was 54% of people said that they wanted that in late 2018. And this was clearly born of frustration about Brexit. And what it's doing is it's paving the way again for a Johnson premiership who comes along and says, well, you know, Parliament's getting in the way. Let's shut down Parliament. You know, maybe I won't comply with international law, et cetera, et cetera. He probably read that poll and thought that that was in line with what people wanted. You also had polls. I remember in one of your reports, which I was involved in, editing some fascinating evidence from John Curtis on people's attitudes to the courts, where following the prorogation case, people who had voted remain were very strongly in support of the role of the courts, and people who had voted leave were very opposed to the courts getting involved. We went into the field with this huge survey last summer and asked people some of these questions, and we were pretty surprised by some of the answers on sort of integrity in politics and following the rules, there was absolutely united opinion from people that they want their politicians to follow the rules. We asked people, what do you need for healthy democracy? We asked them to choose between two statements. Healthy democracy requires that politicians always act within the rules, or healthy democracy means getting things done, even if that sometimes requires politicians to break the rules. Now, if we were following that Hansard survey, quite a lot of people would be in favour of rule breaking in order to get things done. But in fact, our survey found 75% of people chose compliance with the rules and only 6% chose breaking the rules in order to get things done. And to be clear, this was pre-Partygate, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. This is in July last year. That's quite heartening in a way, because it shows that that division, that Brexit division doesn't remain, at least didn't remain in, in this poll. And it's also pretty bad news for Boris Johnson, who might have been acting in recent months on the basis of the Hansard poll, um, and opinions seem to have moved away from that. We also asked about effectively checks on the executive, so the various kinds of checks that you can have on the government, on executive power. And the tendency was for people to be in favour of a stronger parliament, a stronger judiciary, a neutral civil service, and a neutral BBC. And some of those results are very strong as well. And with respect to the courts in particular, we were very surprised by the extent to which people wanted disagreements resolved by the courts rather than resolved in Parliament and by the government. And I think that there's a positive to that. You know, people want the rules applied, but there's also a negative that they're so fed up with politicians. If you can take decisions out of the hands of politicians and give them to people who are non-political, they are craving that. So you could see it as a kind of move, a push to technocracy, which is not necessarily healthy in democracy. 
But again, I would say it's bad news for Boris Johnson and for Dominic Raab and, you know, colleagues in government who are thinking that you need to rein in the judges because actually the judges, according to both our poll and the Citizens' Assembly, seem to have more support than the politicians and people want the politicians kept in check and made to follow the rules. And if that means judges doing it, they support it. And there's very little Brexit divide on those things now. You know, it's again, very polarised that there are very few people who support the executive making decisions if they're in a tight corner compared to those who want the judges involved. Now, in your work and the work of many others, we sort of track this sense of disillusionment with politics. I think it's just one in four voters have expressed trust in the British Parliament. I suppose the first question is, you know, we keep saying trust in politics is as low as it's ever been. Is it going down? Has it gone down? Is there a trend we can identify? The truth is it's been low for a long time. Because you talked about expenses where God knows it fell quite dramatically. Yes, yes. So, you know, there are polls that track trust in Parliament and also internationally that ask similar questions because obviously, you know, all democracies have a Parliament. If I look across the figures from the mid-2000s, the number of people saying that they tend not to trust Parliament rather than tending to trust Parliament is a majority throughout that entire period. Only a minority tend to trust. And that's exactly the kind of breeding ground for populism that I was talking about before. What is Parliament? Parliament is a place where compromises are bashed out, where, you know, difficult political questions are faced and you hear a cacophony of voices, not everybody agreeing and policies being agreed that not everybody supports. I think there's not really adequate understanding of that basic truth that you have to have a place where difficult decisions are made. One of the things that I said in the pamphlet that I wrote in 2015 is that politicians themselves are not actually good enough at articulating what politics is and the fact that we need compromise. You know, they're very good at bashing each other. The public we know in, like it when people are able to agree across party lines. And in truth, in Parliament, there's a lot more agreement across party lines out of the limelight than people are ever really aware of. What they see is Prime Minister's question time and that kind of thing where people are, you know, knocking chunks out of each other. That kind of compromise is necessary, but politicians don't really tell us that very much. You know, classically, they avoid the question. They avoid perhaps a little too much turning back to the interviewer and saying, well, you know, that's really complicated, don't you? I mean, actually, one thing I've come across today, and for those listening today, is the 26th. The Ipsos have just released their new issues in text, which tries to track the salience of issues with the general public. And an absolutely gobsmacking finding is that second in the list of the people's priorities is a lack of faith in politicians. And this is now considered the second most important issue facing the country. So I suppose if you're being optimistic about this, that would tell you that not only have people decided they don't trust politicians, but they've now come to the realisation that not trusting politicians might be a problem. To give an example of politicians failing to say that things are difficult and complicated, uh, again, you don't need to go further, do you, than Brexit? You know, one of the criticisms of Theresa May was she took over the leadership after David Cameron had walked away of a divided country and a divided party and a divided parliament. And what she did was pretend it was going to be easy. You know, she never turned around. Gavin Barwell, her former chief of staff, has, has, has been quite open that this was really one of her errors, that she didn't turn around having taken over the leadership and say, 
hey, folks, this is a very big decision. It's very complicated. It's going to be difficult. We're going to have to compromise and try to bring people with her in that way. Her outward face was, this is simple. Brexit means Brexit. I'll deliver it. You know, end of free movement. You know, all of those red lines that she laid down right at the beginning. But then she was unable to live up to, which resulted in her ending up at war with her own party. And it's, it's a big what if of Brexit, but potentially if she turned around and said, how should we solve this? How should we bring the country back together and deal with this complicated conundrum? Perhaps she would have had more success, perhaps. So then again, I suppose the flip side is Boris Johnson negotiator and delivered exactly that. But I've got a bit of a theory about Theresa May, which is that one of the issues with her was she didn't have, you know, we talked about the leadership rules earlier. You didn't have a full leadership contest when she became leader. And one of the things that meant was that different candidates didn't get to lay out different visions for Brexit and have them approved by MPs and members. And I think if that had been the case, things might have happened a little bit differently, you know, because actually you'd have had to have a discussion about different visions at that point. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, obviously, she was in laying down those red lines, which she partly laid down during the leadership contest, she was trying to shore up support from the Brexit wing of the party. And you saw that certainly in the leadership contest when Johnson took over, that all of the candidates, except Rory Stewart, really, felt that they had to say that they were prepared to countenance a no-deal Brexit, to appeal to the Brexit base. So I'm not sure that that is a route. I'm not sure that appealing to the party is a route to realism. I think what she needed to do was appeal to the country and appeal to Parliament as a whole. And I always thought that one of the tricks that she might have been able to pull off, although I'm not sure it would have worked, you know, it's one of those big what ifs. If she had extended a hand of friendship to Labour and said, join me, Keir Starmer, join my negotiating team. Let's go and try and get a Brexit that the whole of Parliament can live with, that delivers for the country. That would have made it very difficult for Labour, very, very difficult offer to turn down. And that would have given her a supermajority in Parliament if she'd been able to pull it off. It might not have worked, but it's, it's an interesting what if, I think. No, I mean, I'd say a couple of things to that. I mean, one, some of the, the Conservatives involved in that process have told our Witness Archive that they basically did give the Labour Party everything they wanted. They didn't put Keir Starmer on the negotiating team, admittedly. But secondly, you know, there is that figure of Corbyn, who was yep. a sort of uniquely distasteful figure for many Conservatives. So we go back to the leadership contest problem. If Labour had been able to get rid of Corbyn at that point, maybe there was a deal that could have been done. You know, there are so many what ifs in Brexit because the result was so tight. An interesting question is whether Johnson has taken this kind of rule breaking and playing to the, to the stereotype of the dishonest politician to such an extreme that actually it's going to open people's eyes to the fact that there is a difference between honest and dishonest politicians and we want honest ones please and whether actually it's going to be a turning point or whether it's just going to be another step on the road to more and more extreme populism but it feels to me like there's a mood in the conservative party and certainly if they look at the polling that we've just done that we need to get back to honesty and integrity in politics and we need to demonstrate that as loudly and clearly as we can and so that poll suggests, in line with our poll, I think that there is a thirst out there for something different. And the, the challenge for the Conservative Party is whether they're going to try and deliver that with whoever follows Boris Johnson, I think. Today is the day when Boris Johnson's soundbite was that Keir Starmer was a lawyer, not a leader.
we're in a time now where the question is, would we actually like a bit more boring in politics? You know, have we had enough of have we had enough of excitement? Well, there's a there's a fascinating thought on which to leave this. Meg, thank you so much. This has been utterly fascinating and has given me at least loads and loads of food for thought. So we're gonna have a, have you on again quite soon, I think. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.